Our topic today is the 10 words that shape the world. And our text is Acts chapter 17 and verses 16 through 20. Paul was waiting for them in Athens, Luke says. The them there is Silas and Timothy. Paul was like the ultimate guy at getting canceled by his culture. Previous to this on his second missionary journey, he was in Thessalonica. They didn't like him there, and he almost got lynched. Then he went to Berea, and the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians, Luke says, because they received the message with great eagerness, and they searched the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And everything was going well until the Thessalonians showed up in Berea and agitated and stirred up the crowds, and so they had to send Paul ahead on his own, by himself, to Athens. And that's the context. Uh, When he got to Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was kind of the supreme court of Athens, and they would have their meetings on Mars Hill, the the hill of Ares, the god of war. And they would judge matters related to the city, matters of religion and culture and education, And they would also test out new speakers to see if those speakers were competent enough to reason and talk to people in the marketplace day by day. So they brought him there where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what you mean. Now, you'd have to have been asleep or perhaps living on another planet the past few years not to have noticed that our culture, which was already on a precipitous decline morally and spiritually, has plunged to an all-time new low. Uh, A 50-year-old man who identifies as a woman is allowed to join a swim meet in Barrie for teenage girls and also to change in the very same locker room with young girls as young as eight years old. Ivy League university presidents, when they're asked whether it's immoral for student protesters to call for the genocide of the Jewish people, can only muster up the response, well, it depends on the context. Well, we also know that academic elites have been telling us for a number of years now that since you determine whether you're LGBT or Q, or further letters yet to be defined, you also determine what race or ethnicity you are. If I, a white male, self-identify as African-American or indigenous, then indeed that's what I am. It's all up to me. Now, the evangelical Christian response to this distressing trend has been less than heartening. Two examples. I could multiply them indefinitely. We just don't have the time. Uh, In the interests of diversity and inclusion, the president of King's University in Edmonton, Alberta, I wrote an article for an academic journal entitled King's Journey Towards LGBTQ Plus Inclusion. And, of course, it's a big difference between inclusion understood as welcome, 
Matthew eleven twenty twenty eight, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's inclusion as welcome. Versus inclusion as unqualified acceptance. Since that's the way you feel, since that's the way you self-identify, your chosen lifestyle is good in God's eyes. You're perfectly good to go, and he accepts it just as you are. I recently attended a, a talk by a Christian counselor, and the talk was on how to avoid conflicts in difficult um, conversational contexts. And uh, the speaker put forward the following suggestion. She said, it's best if you identify all your explicit biases up front before you say what you believe. So here's what she advised. Somebody like me should say something like this. As a white evangelical cisgender male born in Calgary, Alberta, who lives in Newmarket and goes to Cedarview Community Church, I feel like Jesus is the Messiah. You see how I have to identify all those things up front. And then somebody else who hears me saying those things says, oh, that's okay. I'm not offended. He's just saying that's true from his perspective as that white evangelical male from Calgary who goes to Cedarview. It's just that I'm not white, I'm not evangelical, I'm not born in Calgary, so it's not true for me, even if that's his truth. Well, what in the world is going on here? And how in the world are we biblical Christians supposed to respond to this trend? Does the Bible have anything to say to us to give us any sort of help? Are we just kind of on our own on this one? Well, fortunately, I think Paul's encounter with the Athenian philosophers in Acts chapter 17 gives us some instruction. And so I want to share three lessons that I think Luke teaches us in this chapter. So let's take a look. Lesson number one, in the face of relativism, Paul didn't share his faith. He proclaimed the faith. This is Acts chapter 17 and verses 22 and 23. This is the way Paul launches out in his speech on the Areopagus. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. Every way. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, to fully appreciate this first uh, lesson, it's important to understand a little bit of the context. Athens was not only the heart of Greek intellectual world, the birthplace of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. It was also a radical hotbed of relativism. Absolutely every religious perspective was represented and included. So notice how Paul begins. He says, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Well, it's not almost every way, it's in every way. Now, that's a pretty tall order, isn't it? How do you get that kind of maximal diversity and inclusion so that you can actually say in every way? Well, they did it like this. Just in case somebody who was out of town arrived in town and said, hey, wait a second, you guys aren't diverse and inclusive. You haven't included my God. Where's the altar to my God? They had included that under the rubric to an unknown God. They just say, oh, we've got you covered right over here. You can go and worship there to the unknown God. We just didn't realize that there was one more God to add to the list. Now, if you know anything about relativism, you'll know that it says there's no such thing as the truth, truth with a capital T, as they say. There are only little t truths. 
truth for you and truth for me, my truth and your truth. There's no such thing as the God. There are only gods. Now, in that sort of environment, sharing is the order of the day. Because when I share, I'm only telling you what's helpful for me, what's useful for me, what I find beneficial for my life. I'm not telling you it has to be so for you. So I'm not contradicting you when you say, well, that's not my truth. It's not helpful for me, and it's not beneficial. Uh, When you say the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is your favorite chronicle of Narnia, you're hardly offended if I say the magician's nephew is mine because I'm not really contradicting you. After all, how could I contradict your claim that that's your favorite book? It would be as though I had to say, what you say is your favorite chronicle of Narnia isn't actually your favorite chronicle of Narnia. It's something else. But of course, you're the expert on that. To proclaim the truth is totally different matter. Biblically, to proclaim is to announce or declare something to be a fact, a fact for everyone at all times and in all places, regardless of what they want, regardless of what they desire, regardless of how they self-identify. Jesus says, for example, he must proclaim the good news of the kingdom, Luke 4.43. We're told that the disciples never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. See, they didn't share. They proclaimed it as absolute truth. And after explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead, Paul doesn't say, hey, guys, for me, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Here's what he says. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. You see the difference? For me, I believe Jesus is the Messiah versus this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Big difference. So lesson number one, take note. To proclaim isn't to share your feelings or your desires or your outlooks or your perspective. There's a place for that, but not when you're contending with a hostile ideology like Paul was. In that case, what you need to do is proclaim the truth, period, no qualifications like for me. Of course, that raises the all-important question, what is it that we're supposed to proclaim? And that leads us to our second lesson. In the face of relativism, Paul sets God high above all cultural standards. It's a strategic move on his part, and it's absolutely brilliant. Acts 17.24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he gives all men life and breath and everything else. Paul's second lesson to us is this. You will lose every cultural class and you will always be on your back foot if you don't seize the high ground immediately. And taking the high ground means erecting a standard above all subjective feelings and opinions of people and how they self-identify. You need to declare right at the outset that the standard for judging is absolute. It's not relative to me, to us, or to our culture. And it's objective. It doesn't depend on us. It's absolute and objective. Paul's first 10 words, raise the flag and seize the high ground. Here are the 10 words. 
the God who made the world and everything in it? Have you said the 10 words? By the way, that flies right in the face of Greek culture and all their non-negotiables. Because for the Greeks, there are multiple gods. And Paul says, the God who created the world and everything in it. Remember John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You remember that? He doesn't say this. I am a way and a truth and a life. Because if he'd said that, everybody would have said, uh, multiple religions would have said, oh, okay, you're just saying you're one of the ways to the Father. You're one of the ways to God. But he narrows it down to, I am the only way. And that's what the the definite article, the, means. It means there is one God and only one God. There aren't many standards for judging, therefore. There's exactly one standard, and it's above and outside the world. Secondly, the Greeks, they didn't believe that the world had a beginning. They believed that the world was eternal and never had a beginning. It was never created. And yet, what does Paul say? He says, straight out of the gates, the one God made the world and also everything in it. Thus, the world isn't eternal. Now, that's a strange way to begin with those first 10 words that is an offense to everything in Greek culture. So why did Paul begin with what he knew they would not accept? And we know they didn't accept it because it says the Athenians disputed with him. They called him a babbler, which is not a compliment to any speaker. So if you want to come up to me later and say, what were you babbling about? I'm not going to take that as a compliment. And they said his ideas were strange. So they didn't accept what he said. The 10 words are strategic because they focus the debate on the real issue, namely whether there's a God who not only created the universe and us, but will also judge it in righteousness. You see that in verse 30, where Paul says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, the ignorance of the Athenians worshiping multiple gods. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So obviously, they're talking about his son, Jesus Christ. So do you see the strategic advantage? The 10 words allow Paul to call for the Athenians to repent in the face of coming judgment. The thing to see is you can't repent unless you admit you were wrong in an absolute sense, and somebody else is right in that same sense. If you're calling for somebody to repent, you need an absolute moral standard against which people can be measured. And Paul has that because of the way he began. That standard resides in the God who created all things, and that includes you and I. We're not going to be measured against our culture or what it accepts, or ourselves, say how we self-identify, God will judge us with perfect justice, the justice found in himself. And he'll do that by the man he has appointed, his son, Jesus Christ. So the 10 words are a strategic move on Paul's part, allowing him to call for the repentance of the Athenian people. And they do need to repent. One of the 10 commandments, don't forget, is you shall have no other gods before me. And that had to really irk the Apostle Paul. Okay, final lesson, lesson number three. In the face of relativism, Paul brings down the stronghold in which the culture trusts. This is in many ways the most important move that he makes. 
in his dialogue with them. Acts chapter 17, verses 28 and 29. We should not think, he says, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, that's an interesting little quotation there. Paul's actually quoting their own poets back to them. And if you have a good study Bible, probably in the footnotes, it'll say that this is a quotation from the poet Aratus. And Aratus was a Stoic philosopher and poet who had studied with Zeno some 300 years earlier in the very city that Paul is talking, in Athens. And the quote is from a strange little poem that Aratus wrote called Phenomena. What's he doing quoting from a Greek poet? Um, the, the poem is about weather patterns and uh, constellations in the sky. And the passage that he quotes from goes like this. Let's begin with Zeus, whom we mortals never leave unspoken. For every street, every marketplace is full of Zeus. Even the sea and the harbor full of this deity. Everyone everywhere is indebted to Zeus. For indeed, we are his offspring. So it's strange. You're not, he's not thinking about Zeus, the individual Greek god. He's thinking about Zeus as a life force that's rational or intelligible in nature and that binds all things together. You remember the Avatar movie? If you haven't seen the Avatar movie, you won't get this reference. But the, the blue Avatar creatures on that other planet are able to plug their tails into trees and hear the voices and the memories of past generations, because this life force is actually on the level of consciousness. It's sentient in nature, or the force in Star Wars for people who are as old as I am, something like that. Um, For Aratus, Zeus isn't a person at all. It's an all-pervading rational principle that unites all things into one. Of course, Paul doesn't believe in Zeus, but he capitalizes on the fact that the Athenians do. And if so, their idolatry is actually incoherent. For clearly, if we are Zeus's offspring and we're rational, then Zeus must be rational as well because we're his offspring. Therefore, in worshiping unthinking blocks of metal and stone, the Athenians are not worshiping Zeus at all. What they're doing is incoherent. If Paul were to return today, what would he say about Toronto? I think he would say that Toronto is a city full of gods. Not images of gold and silver, of course, but ourselves. Richard Baxter, the great Puritan pastor, once referred to the grand idol of carnal self. We worship ourselves. We worship at the feet of ourselves and the power that we wield in our culture to determine things like our gender and sexual orientation. God doesn't get to determine those things. We do because we're in charge. Do we know how Paul would react if he arrived in Toronto from another city? We actually do. Here's what he would say. First, have you proclaimed the 10 words, the God who made the world and everything in it? Now, he takes those 10 words and he prefixes them to isn't, doesn't live in temples built with human hands. But what we need to do is prefix those 10 words to the God who made the world and everything in it. He made them male and female, not 74 genders, two genders. He made them male and female. 
Secondly, have you bookended the times of ignorance, he would say. The God who made the world will judge it. He'll judge everyone, everywhere, by his standards and not ours. And then number three, Paul would say to us, have you found your erratus quote yet, like I did? Uh, you need an erratus quote, some authoritative passage or quotation from a leading thinker that defines the stronghold that you're going to pull down. And if the, the crew up at the top there will put up our slide, here's one. Here is an erratus quote. This is from the philosopher Rebecca Tuvel. A few years ago, she was in Toronto and she gave a talk to a small group of us at a secular university in town. There's only about eight of us in the audience. And this paper was later published, the one she read to us. And here's what she says. There are at least two components to a successful identity transformation. An identity transformation is when you trans, uh, transform from being male to being female, even though you're biologically male. Or you uh, have an identity transformation from being white to being indigenous. You're in charge of that transformation, at least 50% of it anyway. So here's the successful identity transfer, uh, transformation. Number one, how a person self-identifies. How do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as male or do you think of yourself as female? And two, whether a given society is willing to recognize an individual's felt sense of identity by granting her membership in the desired group. So do you get the two? I self-identify as female, everybody else in my culture agrees with that, and therefore, I've now successfully transformed from male to female. I gotta have those two things. I self-identify, you agree with my self-identification, and then I successfully transition. Well, that's the heart of the current transgenderism phase, but it's easily turned on itself. For suppose I'm a member of two cultures or societies, culture A and culture B. And let's suppose I self-identify as female, when in fact I'm male. If society A recognizes my felt sense of identity, therefore I am female, even though I'm biologically male, because I've met Rebecca Tuvel's two conditions. But I'm also a member simultaneously of culture B. I self-identify as female in culture B, but unfortunately, culture B won't cooperate with that, and they won't recognize my felt sense of identities. Therefore, I'm not female. But since I'm a member of both of those cultures simultaneously, it turns out I'm both female and not female at the same time. That is not a successful identity transition. It's just a contradiction in terms. So one last point. You might be thinking, but I'm afraid to speak out like this. I get it. I do. Mostly that's because we're worried about the response we're going to get. Well, I can actually tell you what that response is going to be. It will be no different than the one that Paul got in Athens all those many years ago. Acts 17.32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Just look, just expect that up front. Some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. They're open. A few became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. 
So it was worth it. He spoke the 10 words. It offended the cultural sensibilities of his time, but it was worth it. And if Paul were here today, I think I know what he would say to us. Just speak the 10 words and forget about the results. Those can be safely left to God. Let's pray.